Well, thank you very much for the warm welcome. It's good to be here once again to represent the work and witness of the Trinitarian Bible Society. Perhaps I should just add regarding the notices that uh, my presentation at the Barton meeting will not be the same as this evening, so I don't feel it's just going to be a replication of what I said tonight. Perhaps I should also add regarding TBS, we have an open day arranged for the 9th of March. I realise you have a young people's meeting in the afternoon, but we open at 10.30, and we are asking people to book a place online, and there'll be three different presentations at the open day. So do feel free to come along to our London headquarters at Morden, southwest London, and uh, it's wonderful how the Lord has provided for the society uh, a new building, new office space, new headquarters, and we pray the Lord will bless that open day for those who come along. So Saturday, 9th of March, and uh, 10.30 in the morning is when we begin. Now, the work of TBS in God's good providence has gone on apace since my last visit. In a 12-month period, the Society has been able to publish and distribute 2.9 million scripture items, translated into 40 languages and sent out to 120 countries. Now, 2.9 million scripture items represents a 25% increase on the previous year. And we're thankful to the Lord how he has provided for the needs of the society since its formation back in 1831. It's a faith work. We're looking to the Lord to continue to move his people and uh, the gathered churches of the Lord Jesus Christ to support prayerfully and practically this important ministry. Perhaps I can share with you just a brief letter from Nigeria in reference to our Golden Thoughts calendars. I do have just a few, I think just four, Golden Thoughts calendars for this year left. They're free. Do help yourself to copy after the meeting. And they're a blessing to many people around the world as they're translated into quite a variety of languages. So from Nigeria, we have this report. May I send to you our warm greetings, heart of love and appreciation. The Golden Thoughts have been a delight for thousands here in Nigeria, Niger and Cameroon and sometimes in Chad. Due to the simplicity and easy use, many hearts are drawn to Christ daily. Many, out of the inability to afford the daily devotionals, find the Golden Thoughts calendar the only option. And we're thankful to hear the way in which they're so gladly received and the Lord is blessing his people through this simple format calendar, just a part of verse or a whole verse maybe for the day, something for people to think about and ponder and to read the whole chapter to get the context in which that verse is found. Now, last year when I came, I mentioned the way in which we've been promoting the Word of God by special edition Bibles, and in particular I mentioned the Platinum Jubilee Bible 2022, which we have been producing we published in total 50,000 copies, such was the ongoing demand, and we were very encouraged as to how many churches and pastors reached out to local communities and the door opened for the presentation of God's Word, primarily to a younger generation. And that really was quite encouraging. When you stop to think of the very secular, atheistic society in which we are living, uh, the Lord has opened these significant doors for the circulation of the Holy Scriptures via local auxiliaries as well as individual churches making contact in their local community. 
But interestingly, in Bedford, some of the opportunities that opened in 2022, schools we hadn't had contact before opened their doors to us, and those doors have remained open. We've been back a number of times to help with school assemblies to speak to children, and regarding last year, we were able to go to present coronation Bibles to the reception year that had come into the school since the previous year. So that was especially encouraging. One school had 70 copies for the reception class, one of the largest schools in the, in the county uh, primary school had 90 Bibles for the reception class. So it really is quite significant numbers of scriptures. So something like 1,200 or more Bibles were presented in the Platinum Jubilee year and many more, some hundreds more, in the coronation year of last year. We published a total of 45,000 coronation Bibles. I have to admit, this time last year, I was dubious whether we have moved another large quantity of special edition Bibles. But I'm pleased to say there's not many left. And uh, we're thankful for the way the Lord has moved hearts to make opportunities and open doors and to present the Word of God to a younger generation. So when you add up the figures, something in the region of 95,000 young people now have a Bible of their own. In many cases, this will be their first Bible and the only Bible in their homes. Who knows how the Lord may work through these scriptures going into these homes. I was talking about this in a church in Bristol last summer, and a lady came up to me afterwards and said, just for your encouragement, some years ago my daughter received a Bible in school. She didn't seem particularly interested and laid it aside, but I picked it up and read it, and the Lord saved me. And it warms our hearts, doesn't it, when we hear how the Lord works through just the reading of scripture. We know the Lord appoints preachers and evangelists and Sunday school teachers and so on and missionaries to convey the gospel like Philip did to the Ethiopian eunuch. But the Lord also used simply the page of scripture as the Holy Spirit applies it to the heart with light and understanding. So we are encouraged when we hear of these things. So we do value prayer regarding this ongoing ministry of providing the word of God to schools in these days. Now, it can be quite frustrating contacting schools. Sometimes it's a flat no by way of response. Sometimes there's just no answer at all. I had this experience last year at a school I've been going to for 10 years on the Isle of Wight. I go once a year to visit churches and assemblies on the island, and I made contact well in advance of my visit planned for May of last year, and there's no response from the contact there at that school. So I sent the email again some weeks later, still no response. I phoned the school office, and so it went on. Eventually, I made contact with a Christian teacher that I know at that school. And she came back to me with this response saying, sadly, the school has not had any Christian visitors since your last visit. I have mentioned yourself a couple of times, along with other names who used to come in, but without, without any success. Locally, we have an open-the-book group who have offered to come in, but it always seems to be a no thank you. I don't remember the last assembly with any mention of God. Now, you stop to think about that. Schools are required to have assemblies, and the teaching is to be broadly of a Christian nature. That's the law as it stands still in this country. But here is a school who has just let things drift, as it were, and this teacher can't remember the last assembly with any mention of God. She went on to say the children have a half-term RE day, 
And that obviously depends on who is planning the day and what faith it is on. You think about it. Other faiths uh, are spoken about, perhaps, but rarely are Christian things mentioned. She went on to say, I'm praying that the door will be opened to you. And very soon after, the door did open, thankfully, in God's good providence. And I was able to go to that school to talk to the children. Uh, They were a group of 50, 11-year-olds. I was given 45 minutes to talk to these children and to explain something of the message of grace in the Word of God. At the end of the session, I offered a free coronation Bible. And the teacher said, you're not obliged to have a Bible. If you'd like to have one, do take one as you leave the classroom. I don't think there was one child that didn't take a Bible, which is most encouraging. And I often find it's the case, where there's opportunity to talk to children first, their interest is awakened sufficiently to feel, I want a Bible for myself. And it may be just curiosity initially, but we know the Lord can use that initial interest to stir people's hearts as they read the Word, that they might be continually prompted to take down their Bibles and search the Scriptures. We value prayer for this that the Lord will stir up the hearts of this younger generation. They might search the scriptures and find salvation. Now, just over 200 years ago, a little boy was born at Blantyre in central Scotland. He went on to become a famous pioneer, explorer, and a missionary, and for many years was regarded as something of a national hero. I'm referring to David Livingstone, and... He was particularly remembered last year because it was 150 years ago that he died last year. Now, he's born on the 19th of March, 1813, and he died at the age of 60 in the shores of Lake Bangulu in Zambia. He was born into a working-class family of seven children. He was the second child of that family. And at the age of 10, he had to leave school to go to work in a cotton mill. That wasn't unusual in those days. But his father and a Sunday school teacher were concerned to continue his education. And he made good progress. In fact, he taught himself Latin during his teenage years. But at the age of 20, something happened that was to completely change his outlook on life. The Lord saved him by his grace. He came to realize his need of Christ as a saviour and fled to him for refuge. And as a result of this, he saw the world around him in a very different light. He realized he was surrounded by lost sinners and living in a world of lost millions. He felt a burden to be of some use in some way for the furtherance of the gospel. Having saved his earnings, he went to Anderson's University in Glasgow to study medicine. And one night, he heard a missionary report from Robert Moffat. Now, Moffat had been serving the Lord in Bechuanaland, now part of South Africa. He was home in Scotland on furlough, taking meetings, talking about the work, and something he said that night really gripped hold of David Livingstone. He said this, I could show you the smoke of a thousand villages in Bechuana land and have never heard of Jesus. And this so moved Livingstone, he found he must enlist with the London Missionary Society. So he moved to London to complete his medical studies at Charing Cross and Moorfields Hospitals and set sail in December 1840 for Bechuana land as a missionary doctor. Now, as I mentioned earlier, he was also an explorer, and he spent a lot of time exploring the interior of Africa, and in the process met numerous tribes that never seen a white man before. 
Of course, he's very limited as to how he could communicate with these people, but he believed he was blazing a trail. Others would follow in due course and settle amongst these people, learn their language, and make known to them the gospel, which has happened in many, many cases. He also saw firsthand the horrors of the slave trade. Now, of course, Britain had finished with the slave trade by that stage, having campaigned, particularly through Wilberforce's leadership, to bring an end to these things. But other nations, like the Portuguese and some Arab nations, were still practicing these things. So Livingstone campaigned for the rest of his life to bring an end to these things. He also exercised his gifts in medicine, and he became so popular, he had to restrict himself to the more serious cases. And it's understood he was the first person to establish a link between mosquitoes and malaria. He died on the 1st of May 1873, in the attitude of prayer, on his knees by his bedside. The locals who loved him dearly removed his heart and buried it under a tree to demonstrate his heart was left in Africa, and his body was carried over a thousand miles to the coast and brought back to England, and buried in Westminster Abbey. Now in 2002, Livingstone was voted as being amongst the top 100 greatest Britons. I don't think he would have approved of such an accolade, because... In his journal one occasion he said this, I desire to promote the glory of him to whom I owe all my hopes for time and eternity. So if you go to Westminster Abbey, you can see for yourself the memorial tablet which says, amongst other things, for 30 years his life was spent in an unwearied effort to evangelize the native races, to explore the undiscovered secrets to abolish the desolating slave trade of Central Africa, where with his last words he wrote, All I can add in my solitude is, May heaven's rich blessing come down on everyone, American, English or Turk, who will help to heal this open sore of the world. And then follows a lovely text from John 10, which you will know well, the words of Christ, the Good Shepherd. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. And that verse has been a great motivating text to so many believers down through the years, prompting them to leave home comforts, to go to remote places, even dangerous places, to make known the gospel and to translate the word of God. Now, rather interestingly, some years ago, I came across a quotation from Livingstone's journals, and he acknowledges that he didn't see much by way of spiritual fruit to his labors, but he believed he was laboring where the Lord intended him to labor, and that others would follow in due course, and the gospel would be blessed, and better days would come. He said this, we work toward another state of things. Future missionaries will be rewarded by conversions for every sermon. Now, when I read that, it reminded me of something I'd heard from a Reformed pastor who left this country to go to Lusaka Baptist Church in Zambia. And he said his usual experience, at least for a period of time, the usual experience was this. Whenever he preached the gospel, there were conversions for every sermon. Now, this man wasn't an excitable sort of man. He didn't just accept any profession of the Christian faith. He was a man of discernment. But he said there were conversions for every sermon. And if there weren't any conversions under a particular gospel sermon, then the people of God will be searching their hearts 
seeking to discover whether perhaps they had grieved the Spirit of God in some way, and therefore the blessing had been withheld. And in this concluding part of his quotation, Livingstone says this, We are their pioneers and helpers. Let them not forget the watchmen of the night, we who worked when all was gloom, and we had no evidence of success in the way of conversion. Well, you can't help admiring the tenacity of such men as Livingstone, who went uh, with little protection, who went dependent on the providence of God, and the Lord enabled them to go on in the midst of great difficulties and dangers and uh, encourage others to come along with the message of grace and the gospel subsequently. So having spoken about Zambia, the country where David Livingstone died, I want to spend a few minutes on Zambia and talk about the work of TBS in that regard, because it's true to say for many years TBS has literally sent tons of English Bibles to Zambia, because English is the official language, or one of them, in Zambia, widely spoken, it's used in education, it's a business language, and people are very glad to have their own copy of an English Bible. And we're very thankful for the open door there is for the Word of God in countries like Zambia. Now, I heard a report some time ago which suggested that something like 90% of the population of Zambia will consider themselves to be Christians. Now, it's not quite so encouraging as it first appears, because in many of these so-called Christian churches, the message of grace is terribly obscured by the health and wealth prosperity gospel, which of course is no gospel at all, and by churches mixing up biblical things with pagan concepts and language. So many people don't really know what the gospel is, in spite of thinking they're Christians. But having said that, there's a groundswell of Bible-based churches being established in that country. I was talking to a man from Kent some months ago, and he's bemoaning how small some of the churches were in his area. Some have closed in recent times. But, he says, I'm hearing rather different reports from Zambia. That on, on average, there's a Bible-based church being opened one every week. And that appears to chime with other reports that we are receiving from different directions. And we're thankful to hear of these things. Let me just share with you a part of a, a report from a contact with the Free Grace Evangelistic Association. Over the years, they've done good work in identifying translators in these African countries, people they've had contact with who may have the necessary gifts. But the man who wrote this report was due to take a Bible conference at Mongu in the western part of Zambia. He said the journey would normally take 13 hours. That sounds long enough, doesn't it? But on this occasion, it took him 36 hours because of breakdowns and problems with the roads. And he said he didn't have a wink of sleep all those 36 hours. And when he got there, they wanted him to go straight into the meeting and begin preaching, which he did. And this is what he said afterwards. The brethren testified that there had never been a program of this nature before, not only in the district, but in the entire province. They said this was a great breakthrough for the Christian community there. Others were saying we need more of this kind here. There is such a hunger for the word of God and for sound teaching and Christian literature in the area. There is need for more Bibles, both in English and in the local languages. So it's encouraging to hear how gladly God's word is being received 
by people there in that country. So, having spoken about English scriptures for Zambia, let me move on to some of the local dialects, because we also believe it's important, where possible, to provide translations in the mother tongue of the people. It's good if they can read English as a second language, but far better if they can read the Bible in their native dialect. And we're working on two projects at the present time for the Zambian people. First of all, there's the Chichewa translation project. Chichewa is spoken in Malawi and Mozambique, as well as Zambia. It's an official language alongside English. And since 2015, we have been progressing on this particular project. Now, our translator often has to work at night time, because such is the delicate nature of the infrastructure that during the day, when there's a high load on the system, often there are power cuts, which can be very frustrating if he's busy translating and everything goes blank. So to avoid that happening, he often works at night time, and he's quite prepared to do so because he has a great burden for his fellow countrymen that they might have the word of God faithfully conveyed to them. And during the lockdown, when he couldn't go to his usual employment, he was spending more time at home, which freed him up to give extra time to this project. So not so long ago, last year, we published a large quantity of special edition New Testaments. Chipangano Chatsopano, the New Testament for the Chichewa-speaking people. And we earnestly pray that God will bless the circulation of these scriptures as it's faithfully rendered into their tongue. We're hoping in another two years or maybe three years the Old Testament will be completed, which is good news, and we look forward to that significant step forward when the whole of God's Word will be available in an accurate presentation for the Chichewa-speaking people. The other project that we are working on for the people of Zambia is the Bemba Scriptures. Now, Bemba is spoken by four million people as a first language and another two million people as a second or a third language. So there's potential for reaching large numbers of people with the Bemba Scriptures. Now, perhaps I should just say there are already quite a large number of Bible translations or New Testament or Gospel translations in various African dialects, but often they're a very poor translation. In many cases, it's a translation from a poor English translation, like the Good News Bible, which is more of a paraphrase rather than a direct translation. So by the time that's conveyed into an African dialect, the end result often is a far remove from what God actually says in his word. Now, our two translators working on the Bemba project were converted in prison. I don't know what their crimes were, but they were initially sentenced to death. But in God's providence, it was transmuted to 10 to 15 years. And during that time, they were converted. And upon their release from prison, now new creatures in Christ Jesus, they became aware of the deficiencies of the present Bemba Bible. They gave one example of why a better translation was necessary. In the present Bemba Bible, instead of using the word for hell, which implies punishment, they used another word which means spirit world. And that's not a biblical concept. That's witch doctor language. So they had the discernment to see that something was needed to improve the Bemba scriptures and the need to start afresh and to go through the scriptures carefully and to translate as directly as possible. 
So we have the Gospel of John available in Bemba. We've recently done another print run, so some thousands are available already. We trust these will be a great blessing to those who receive it. The New Testament is going on apace. We don't have a, a date for publication as yet, but we do know uh, the work is progressing well. So we're very thankful for that. And of course the grand ambition is to produce the whole of the scriptures in due course. But we have to be patient and we trust this will be completed as God enables as time goes on. So we do value your prayers regarding these two projects, the Chichewa project and the Bemba scriptures. And Bemba has also spoken in the southern part of the Congo. So we trust the Lord will further the work of his kingdom through these scriptures as published by TBS. One more translation project I want to mention, and that is the scriptures for the Spanish-speaking world. Now, for many years, TBS published what was known as the 1909 Reina Valera Spanish Bible. And some years ago, it was brought to the society's attention that at a certain point, some verses didn't conform as closely as possible as they needed to to the Hebrew and Greek. And it was felt something ought to be done to make it a bit more accurate at those points. In addition, modern Spanish is much more clearly defined than modern English. In English, we can say the same thing two or three different ways, and it's still considered grammatically correct. But in Spanish, because of the influence of the Language Academy in Madrid, which sort of effectively lays down the law as to how modern Spanish should be written or spoken, that meant that our translation had many linguistic anomalies and obsolete grammatical structures. So it was realized something ought to be done to make some improvement in that regard. It's quite a different situation to the English authorized version. The English authorized version, to a considerable degree, has molded and fashioned modern English and held back considerable change, whereas the Spanish Bible hasn't had that same impact. So the situation is not, not the same. But nevertheless, we felt it, we ought to do something regarding this. And the advice that the TBS committee received was what was needed was just a light revision that might take about 12 months. Well, here we are 16 years later. But in God's goodness, the work has now been completed. We began with the Gospel of John and literally hundreds of thousands of the revised Gospel of John in Spanish has been produced and circulated and gladly received. And then we moved on to the New Testament and we also published the Psalms and Proverbs along with the New Testament. Again, large quantities have been produced for distribution. But here we have, hot off the press, La Santa Biblia, the revised Spanish Bible in its completeness. And we received 50,000 copies last year and we're expecting another dispatch of 10,000 copies, and we're anticipating that year after year there's likely to be large quantities produced because the demand for the Spanish Bibles is really quite phenomenal. The Lord has been at work in Latin American countries in a marked way by his Spirit over the last several decades, and many have been drawn out of the Roman Catholic Church, which has held sway for centuries, but now is sort of on its back foot, and Bible-based churches are being established in many of these uh, Central and South American countries. Not so much in Spain, sadly, but in these Latin American countries. Now, one of the great difficulties 
in providing a translation for a language that's so widely spoken is that words are used in different ways in different parts of the Spanish-speaking world. 550 million people speak Spanish across 20 countries. So a word that might be acceptable in Spain might be thought of as an impolite or even a swear word, say Mexico or Bolivia. So how do you get around problems like that? Well, what we did, we set up read and review committees and we asked people to assess the translation revision to come back to us with constructive criticism and to suggest maybe alternative words that convey the sense of the original but also are acceptable all round. And as far as I can see from reports I hear, we have been successful in this regard and the Bible is being very gladly received. Let me just read to you something that only came through the other day and has reference to the Spanish translation revision. Dear brothers, I am writing to inform you of the reception of the New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs that has been delivered to me. First of all, thank you for sending us uh, this translation. We enjoy this new and beautiful translation. As a pastor and professor of theology, I am very pleased to have a copy. I'm thinking of those who dedicated so much time and effort to leave us one of the best translations of the Bible. May God continue to bless and prosper your ministry. That's exceptionally encouraging when you think of the 16 years of hard work. It took four years simply to revise the Gospel of John. And the reason it took so long was because the team were learned how to work together they were devising certain methods as to how they should proceed. And once they had established that as they pr produced the Gospel of John, it was helpful for them to speed up to some extent <clears throat> once they moved on to the other books of the Bible. But it's been the most expensive translation project in the whole of the society's history. But the wonderful thing is this, there's a, a, a huge demand for it and will be as time goes on. Let me just read to you another report from Professor Benitez, who was part of one of these read and review committees. And his more detailed report says this, The Lord has been providing a great revival in all corners of Latin America, and there are many more people who have an ardent desire to read the Holy Scriptures, with many pastors concerned to have the proper readings in the Holy Bible. Also, there are many pastors who are concerned about uh, giving good expository preaching of the Holy Scriptures. Now, this translation has become a strong fortress that the Lord will use in Latin America to give firmness and surety to the Christian church and thus to preserve the historical evangelical faith. Also, many pastors and theologians who are they're returning to the received text which underlies the Scriptures. That's particularly good news, isn't it? because so many have been indifferent regarding these things. And one thing we've found in, over the last 16 years, as we've held conferences for pastors and evangelists and so on, we've explained to them why the more modern Spanish translations are very deficient, because they're based upon the wrong text. And they weren't aware that some of their verses were abbreviated or even missing, and whole passages called into question. And many of these pastors have been very accepting and open to this teaching and understanding the need for a Bible translation based upon the traditional text, the complete text of Scripture. 
So they've been waiting, you might say, with bated breath for the completion of this project. But Professor Benitez goes on to say, I would encourage all those who support this work to continue to do so prayerfully. Then he gives some remarkable circulation figures for Colombia. 22,000 Spanish New Testaments, 40,000 Gospels of John, 30,000 Words of Life calendars, 21,000 Golden Thoughts, 40,000 Scripture leaflets. It really is quite remarkable. That's just one country. So we've set up a distribution center there in Colombia to help on a practical level the easy circulation of the Word. We've done the same in Bolivia. And these are necessary moves to enable the people to distribute God's word successfully. He goes on to say this, that Colombia is a country where drug trafficking has affected so much of society. And for these people to have an opportunity to read the Bible in a translation that is clear and trustworthy, exposes people to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have the testimony of drug traffickers who have been prisoners and have had the opportunity to read the word of God, and have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. In conclusion, I wish to say thank you for what you are doing. Through the work of TBS, it has an incredible impact upon the rest of the world. Well, we're encouraged to hear those kind of responses, and we anticipate hearing of many more testimonies of God's saving grace through these scriptures being circulated far and wide throughout Latin American countries in particular. So we value your prayerful support regarding this. One of the problems we've been having in the last few months is trying to find venues in these Latin American countries large enough to accommodate all the people that want to come along to hear about this completed revision and to receive their own copy of the complete Spanish Bible. It's a good problem to have in one sense, but it's a challenge. But we're thankful for the great interest that the Lord has stirred up in the hearts of the people. So do continue to pray for the society's work. We very much appreciate your interest. And I would commend to you the bookstall afterwards, the usual items for sale, Bibles, bookmarks, uh, greetings cards, and uh, children's colouring books and quiz books and so on. And some free literature down the far end do help yourself to the quarterly record. There's plenty of good bedtime reading there and also other free items. Let us now turn to the Lord in prayer. I now invite your attention to the chapter that was read earlier, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. The 11th chapter of the Ecclesiastes and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through to 6. I won't read them again. I trust they are reasonably familiar to you. Now, if we are saved by God's redeeming grace, then the question arises naturally, how then should we live? And one answer to that question is this, we're not to be living for ourselves anymore. But living with a desire to please God and to serve him, and to be of use to those who live around us. Now this passage, 1 to 6 of this chapter, is on the theme of charitableness, of giving and receiving, of laboring for the Lord, 
and sowing and reaping. This is the general uh, idea that is expressed in these verses. And I want to take these verses simply one by one as we look at this passage. So we begin in verse 1. Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. Now the interesting thing about this verse is this. The illustration that's being used is obscure. What is meant by cast thy bread upon the waters? But although it's obscure, the meaning is clear. That as we labor in some way, there's going to be fruit, there's going to be results, there's going to be uh, blessing in some way. For thou shalt find it after many days. And it's often the case that when God gives exhortations and commandments in his word, he attaches a promise with it to encourage us. As Matthew Henry points out, he says, faith in the promises gives life to the precepts. And we need to remember that, how kind the Lord is. The book isn't just about commanding us, kind of rigorous demanding upon us, but rather he encourages those who trust in him, who have been saved by grace. He encourages our hearts and gives us so many incentives that we might serve him and labor for his cause. But let us try to examine what this illustration maybe is referring to. Some have suggested it could be referring to investments. As you invest a certain sum of money, you don't come back the next day or the next week to expect any significant interest. You're thinking of the long term. Cast thy bread upon the waters, and it shall be seen after many days. Others have suggested what is being referred to is probably the sowing and reaping processes of the Nile Valley. So you think of the Nile Delta with its seven heads, and when the rainy season is over, the waters have subsided, leaving moist, nutrient-rich soil, ideal for sowing, and in due course, ideal for reaping. But I would think that the most likely explanation of this illustration here is ships and exports. You think of a country like the Ukraine. I know their exports have been interrupted and curtailed to some extent over the last two years, but they're still a major exporter of grain. They're casting their bread upon the waters. So the ships go off loaded with hundreds of tons of grain. It goes to other countries far, far away. Money sent back in return or other goods come back to the country in exchange. So they're casting their bread upon the waters. The results are being seen after many days. And it's a lovely illustration for us to remember the need for patience. When it comes to exporting, it takes time, doesn't it? It needs patience before there are any lasting results. And we find that the Apostle James, he gives us a necessary warning regarding these things, also encouragement to hold on and to wait for the Lord's time. James chapter 5 and the middle of verse 7, he says, Behold, the husband man waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be also patient. The farmer doesn't come back within two or three weeks and expect to see any real sign of a coming harvest. He's looking to the long term, isn't he? He's patient. He has to be. He wants the right weather conditions as well. 
and he's looking then for the end result after many, many days. So let us be encouraged, first of all, to be patient as we sow the seed of God's word, whatever the context in which we are sowing that word. The first two goes on to speak about the scope of the work. Give a portion to seven, and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil should be upon the earth. I think perhaps we have to be a bit careful when it comes to biblical numerology. I have a book at home, and it's rather fascinating, perhaps even fanciful, as to what certain figures they believe represent in the scripture. Can we really be sure that number 17 means victory in the Bible? Perhaps it does in some contexts. I'm not sure we can always say that, that is the case. But we do know there are some particularly significant numbers, and seven, of course, is one of them, often referred to as the perfect number. And it comes up again and again. Seven days in one week, God has purposed. It should be so. Six days labor, one day rest. The number seven comes up quite a number of times in the account of the flood in Noah's day. Also, you think of seven in respect to the way in which the Israelites were told to labor for six years, and then the seventh year was a sabbatical year. And then you think of the book of Revelation, the seven churches, the seven trumpets, seven vials being poured out, and so on. All these things are quite significant in their own right. We are to give a portion to seven. We are to labor then, as long as the Lord intends us to do so. That, that time he has allotted us in our lives, till the completion of our days, the completion of our health and strength. You think of Noah's ark. After Noah had obeyed the voice of the Lord and completed that massive structure, and the door remained open, we're told, for yet seven days. Noah and his family had been invited to come in to the ark by the Lord, but the door remained open yet seven days. I would suggest to you we are living in the yet seven days of the gospel. The ark of grace is there in Christ. He is the refuge for sinners. The door of the gospel remains open. And the gospel call goes forth. Come thou and all thy house into the ark. And as God's servants minister the word and the gospel is proclaimed, the gracious invitations of the gospel are to be issued the needy sinners, the weary and the heavy laden, to come and find rest and safety in the ark Christ Jesus. Yes, Christ has labored. The greater than Noah has labored and completed salvation. But eight is mentioned in this verse as well, which indicates a new beginning. Eight souls were in the ark. When the flood subsided, these eight souls came forward into a new beginning, a new world, you might say. And you think of the new beginning of the day of Pentecost. You count up from the end of the Passover. They were to count seven weeks, 49 days. And the next day, the 50th day, so the eighth day, if you like, of the last week of that period, the day of Pentecost. And what a new beginning that was in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came down upon Peter and the other apostles. And the gospel's blessed to such an astonishing degree that 3,000 souls were converted in one day. You turn over the page, you find the number is 5,000. And so the word of God continued to grow amongst them, and souls were being added to the church daily. So eight then, a new beginning. And we are to labor them with that desire that sinners might experience a new beginning, a new birth. 
through our instrumentality as we labor with gospel truth in our hands and in our hearts. For thou knowest not what evil should be upon the earth. We're living in evil days, aren't we? Evil is used in a double sense in the Bible, isn't it? Sometimes it means simply trouble or difficulty or tribulation. That's the sense in chapter 12, verse 1. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not. And it goes on to speak about in a, a pictorial manner, poetic manner, of the trials and difficulties of old age. Evil days in the sense of troublous days and trying days. You ask elderly people, they'll tell you how difficult it is sometimes, with their aches and their pains and their frustrations, and they can't do what they used to do. Evil days in that sense. But often the word evil is used in a moral sense of moral evil or sinfulness. Well, we do not know what troubling days may come, neither do we know what greater sin may be yet manifest in this wicked world. We are seeing the rise of much ungodliness, aren't we? But we're not to be hampered by that or discouraged unduly by that. We are to labor on. We have a message of grace. We have the word of God in our possession. It's freely available. And as we have opportunity, let us seek to serve the Lord. Verse 3 speaks about instrumentality. If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. So you think of the clouds, the water cycle, it's quite a remarkable thing in itself, isn't it? The way in which the waters vaporize, the vapors accumulate in the atmosphere above, and clouds are formed. The wind carries the clouds even from one country to another, and then they precipitate and uh, send down showers, if you like, showers of blessing. And we are to seek to be like that personally and in our ministries, whether it be as Christian parents with our children or our grandchildren or Sunday school teachers or as church members seeking to reach out with the gospel or preachers or evangelists or missionaries. We are to seek to be like the clouds. We come to God's word receiving the truth in our hearts by his grace, learning from him, receiving further light and knowledge and understanding. But it's not just for ourselves. We want others to be blessed by what we've come to discover. We want to be, as it were, sending out showers of blessing with God's help upon the understanding of others, praying that God will own and use us for his glory and for the extension of his kingdom. And it goes on to say here in this verse, if the tree fall toward the south or toward the north, in the place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. There's a finality, isn't there, about these words. It reminds me of the words of Isaac Watts. As the tree falls, there it shall lie, to north or southward, where it fell. So men depart to heaven or hell, fixed in the state wherein they die. I would suggest he's picked up the thought in this verse perfectly, hasn't he? It's a very solemn application, solemn truth. I would suggest to you, we're living in a world of leaning trees. The vast majority of people are leaning hellward and not heavenward. That sort of gives a sense of urgency, surely, to the work we're seeking to do in the gospel. We might be the, the means of, uh, of awakening sinners and alerting them to their danger, the need to seek Christ, the need to be made ready for heaven. So there's a sobering aspect to these words here. 
Verse 4 goes on to speak about the fact we ought not to be unduly discouraged by uh, seeming hindrances. He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. If a farmer was always waiting for ideal or perfect conditions, he probably wouldn't get much done, would he? Yes, of course, he has to watch the weather and try to find the best opportunity but sometimes he may have to go out into the fields when perhaps it's not the best weather conditions. But he has to to get things done, that the seed might be sown, that there might be ultimately a harvest. And so we're not to be unduly discouraged by the circumstances of the days in which we live. There's a danger. I think perhaps I fell into this kind of romantic idea that if only I'd lived in the 1700s, when revival was sweeping through this country and tens of thousands of people were hearing the gospel in public places, if only we lived in those times, surely we could have been so fruitful and so useful. Or maybe we might think to ourselves, if only we lived in the 1800s, the great church and chapel building era, when chapels where the gospel was being preached faithfully were springing up all over the place, towns and villages throughout this land. Well, God didn't intend us to live in those days. He has purpose that we are living in the 21st century, in the present context, the moral context in which we find ourselves. We're not to be sitting at home by our firesides, as it were, wringing our hands in despair. How thankful we should be that Whitfield didn't do that. He could have done. He could have bemoaned the terrible evils of his day. But the Lord raised him up to go forth with the message of grace. And likewise, we are to do the same with God's help. It says back in chapter 7, verse 10, Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Well, certainly we're not wise if we are hindered by the knowledge of former days. We are to then labor in the days in which the Lord has intended us to be and to ask his gracious help and assistance. And there are encouragements. That psalm we sang, the psalm that was read earlier, Psalm 126. He that goeth forth weepeth, weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. We are to labor then, pleading such promises, that the Lord will own and bless what we do, whether it be in formal ministry, or whether it be in private conversation, regarding God's truth. Verse 5 reminds us of the mysterious nature of the work of God. As thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God, who maketh all. Now can you explain to me exactly what happens in conception and the growth of a child in the womb of its mother? There are certain things we know, even as laymen. And there are medical experts, no doubt, who could tell you in great detail what happens and how bones form in the womb and so on. But there's a lot that's still not known. There's a mystery. There are things still hidden from the human understanding regarding these remarkable processes God has purposed in creation. And likewise, in the work of the gospel and in the work of conversion, there's a mysteriousness regarding it. Can you explain to me exactly what happens when the Spirit of God comes to 
give new life to a sinner dead in trespasses and in sins? We can't explain it, but we do know it happens because we see the effects of it, the way in which the Lord turns people's lives around. And now they are humble and penitent, and they are now looking to Christ for salvation. They have a new hope in their hearts they didn't have before, and their feet are set upon the rock, and now following the Lord Jesus Christ and walking with him. A transforming work has taken place. But we can't really quantify it exactly. Sometimes you can't exactly tell when it happens in a person's life. Some can say, it was then and there under that sermon the Lord spoke with life and power to my soul for the first time. But not everyone can say in such specific terms when life first was imparted to their hearts. So there knowest not the works of God who maketh all. We can lift this on a higher level, of course, speaking of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you explain how the Holy Spirit overshadowed the womb of Mary so that Christ was conceived in the womb of her that was with child, how the bones did grow in the womb of Mary, how Christ was formed in his human nature, but at the same time uh, permanently united to his divine nature? It's a, a wonderful mystery. The Apostle Paul says so. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. But we know it's true, wonderfully true, and we rejoice in it. So there are things we can't fully explain, but we rejoice in them nevertheless. As Isaac Watts says, to quote him again, where reason fails with all her powers, there faith believes and hope and love adores. And that's how it is, isn't it? But surely this is also, in verse 5, a reminder to us of the sovereignty of God. Again, inexplicable to us in many respects. I think of something that happened in the ministry of William Gadsby in Manchester. We're talking about 200 years ago now. And at one time there were a number of young men who came into his congregation. And he thought to himself, what a wonderful thing it would be if these young men were blessed and became members of my church. What an ornament they would be to my church. So he said, I went fishing after them. And he said he preached with them particularly in mind over the next few weeks. But nothing appeared to happen. I think I'm right in saying they gradually wandered away and left the congregation. But one day, Gasby had a request to go and see a crippled boy who was seriously ill. And Gasby didn't know who this boy was. He'd never heard of him before, but he felt he ought to go. And to his astonishment, he discovered this boy had been coming into the chapel after the beginning of the service. He didn't want to be seen by anybody, so he sat on the gallery steps. And before the service finished, he went out before anyone caught sight of him. But those sermons that had been preached with these young men in mind had been sealed home by the Spirit of God to that crippled boy's heart. And now he was dying, but dying in the assurance of the faith. The mysteriousness of the sovereignty of God and the way in which he works in the hearts of sinners. Not as we imagine sometimes, but behind the scenes perhaps the Lord is working nevertheless. And then we come to verse 6, which really is an expansion of verse 1. It gives point and force to verse 1. You could say, 
It almost needs to begin with a therefore, in the morning sow thy seed, and in the evening withhold not thine hand, for thou knowest not whether shall prosper, either this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good. So you think of the morning of life. We have to say to young people whose hearts the Lord has touched, be prepared, be ready to serve the Lord. Be useful as a member of a gospel church. Don't leave it to others. And those who may have reached the evening time of life, don't give up as the Lord gives you opportunity and health and strength to do so. Continue to assist where you can. There's some lovely examples of this. I think of a elderly lady that I knew in the island of Guernsey. Year by year, I'd see her at a mission hall where she attended. I went to visit her on one occasion in her home. She was 107. Every year, she received from TBS a number of Golden Thoughts calendars, some hundreds of them, I believe. And she would send them out to people not only on the island, but also in various other countries. And she'd answer the letters that came back to her. She did that year after year. Towards the end of her life, her family were helping her do it, but she continued as life uh, was lengthened out to her. She died at the great age of 109. She hadn't given up, but she was serving the Lord in the evening of life. And likewise, we are to labor on as the Lord gives us opportunity. Remember, we received a letter at TBS headquarters some years ago from Guatemala, a retired pastor. He was 83. And he set up a PA system in his home. And the loudspeaker's on the outside of his home. And he'd sit in his armchair by the fireside and read his Bible out loud to the community. Thousands of times he did that. And the people were very pleased with hearing the message of the word by that means. It's remarkable, isn't it, how the Lord gives opportunities in unusual ways for the promotion of the truth. Well, let us not be weary in well-doing, for we shall reap in due season if we faint not. So we are to have patience as we labor on in sowing the good seed of the word of life. The famous commentator Thomas Scott, converted through John Newton's ministry, you may be aware. And on his deathbed, when people came to visit him, to encourage them, he would say, remember, in God's good time, in God's good time. So we labor on then in faith and trust, to labor while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. I think of the Sunday school hymn, put so simply, it says, Though small is all that we can do to please the King of Heaven, when hearts and hands and lips unite to serve the Saviour with delight, they're precious in his sight. Well, may God encourage us by these words to labor on as we have opportunity to do so. We're going to sing together our closing hymn. And it's the hymn 1169. The tune is Trentham, number 58. 1169, based upon the passage we've been considering. Sow in the morn thy seed, at eve hold not thine hand. To doubt and fear give thou no heed, or cast it o'er the land. 1169.